let's take God's word and look at the book of James. So you can take your Bibles and turn to the book of James, chapter 1. James 1, and we will be looking at verses 12 through 18 this morning. Let me just try to summarize a little bit of what we've seen in the book of James so far in these first 11 or 12 verses. Um, trials and testing, these things are a part of everyday life, and that's what James opens his his letter with, um, reminding us how um, practical he is. But he opens with a counterintuitive statement where he tells us to rejoice when trials come. And why? Because if we are in Christ, then beyond the desire to be free from pain uh, and to be from, free from difficulties, we have a desire to be patient and to grow in maturity as we follow Christ. And those are the things that trials produce in us. And so we ask God for wisdom to to see how he is working, wisdom to see the temporary value of the things of this world and to shun that, and wisdom to see the true and the lasting value of Christ-likeness and the crown of life that we will one day receive. So trials, we said, are not waves that have to toss us and crush us to the ground, but trials can be waves as the God-ordained means of taking us to the, the shore of godliness and sanctification and being more like Jesus. That's where we have been. So James has been primarily dealing with trials in life that are external, uh, various situations and circumstances that we might fall into. But the question then becomes, what about the trial that is in us? What about the temptations to evil and unbelief that we face on a daily basis? We're struck once again by how practical James is. Um, it's kind of like James has been hanging out with us all week. And he says, oh, I see all these trials and difficulties, so let me tell you how to face the trials and the testings of, of your life. But in addition to that, I also kind of noticed that you're facing a lot of temptation. Uh, how do you face temptation? How are you going to deal with that? Um, how, do you, how do you struggle with the evil that, that wants to rise in your heart with the difficulties that are there? Where are those things coming from? And how can you be changed? There's a sense in which I think the trials and the testing and, and temptation sort of bleed together, and they sort of have the same root word even um, in, in James. And so these things all are meshed together in some way. So trial comes, and we're tempted. Uh, we're tempted to worry. We're tempted to be angry. We're tempted to be filled with unbelief. We, pain comes, and there's a temptation uh, to cope with that pain, not by seeking Christ, but um, maybe uh, through simple responses, uh, addictions or escapism or laziness. We wrestle with things like laziness and lust and lying. We are prideful people. We are self-seeking people. We look at and we listen to and we say things and we do things that we know are not pleasing to God. We are tempted and we fall into temptation, just like we fall into trials. And all these things sort of come together. And here, James, as he did with trials and, and testings, he's going to sort of draw back the curtain and show us exactly what's going on. He sort of lifts the hood of the car and says, here's how the engine is running. Here's what um, where temptation is, is coming from. So this is what we're going to eventually sort of try to unpack. And this is our, our big idea 
is that temptations rise from within us. That's the first part. Temptations rise from within us. Therefore, we must seek their solution outside of us. So temptations rise from within us. Therefore, in in light of that fact, we must seek their solution outside of us. I'll say that again in a minute. But there's a clock on the wall in, in our house, and I asked Andrea yesterday, why does that clock slow down all the time? It's it's about once a month. It feels like it just decides it doesn't want to keep time anymore. So we readjust it, and it keeps time for a while. So I don't know what's wrong. And she says, some sort of internal thing going on in there. Uh, there's something inside that clock that's making it not work. And we, I'd have to know something about the inner workings. There's no gears like a normal clock. It's something electronic that's going on inside there. But the reality is that clock can't fix itself because there's something internal for many different reasons, right? But there's something internal in that clock, and it can't it can't do it itself. It needs someone to come in and, and, and fix it. And the same is true for us. If temptations rise from within us, there's a sense in which we can try, but ultimately we cannot solve the problem ourselves. If the temptation is in us, we need to seek the solution outside of us. With that in mind... Let's read James 1, 12 to 18. James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Again, temptations rise from within us, therefore we must, we must seek their solution outside of us. Let me, before we kind of try to unpack this, these verses, can I just point out some, some of the structure of what James is doing here? Because it's a beautiful passage, what he's accomplishing in this. So it breaks down fairly simple into two different parts, verses 12 through 15. 12 is kind of this bridge. We could tie it back to the previous section, or it kind of helps us in this section. So we'll plug it in with verses 12 through 15, and then in, in verses verses 16 through 18 form that second section. In the first section, we're going to ask the question, where does temptation come from? And in the second section, we're going to ask, where does good come from? That seems to be what James is setting up. Where does temptation come from, and where does good come from? Look also at the structure. There's there's a few commands. You see one command uh, here in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And so that's the first command. It has to do with the source of temptation and sin. And then the second command in verse 16, do not be deceived, has to do with the source of, of good. Don't be deceived about who God is. It could tie back to the other part. We could go either way with that. There may even be verse 19 uh, the first part of that 
could tie back into this one as well. Know this, my beloved brothers. That James sort of brings this whole thing to a close by saying, "Know this, guys. You got to know these things," um, and that sort of ties it all up. Over all of this is the the promised blessing of, of verse twelve that those who are steadfast in the midst of trials and temptation will receive the crown of life. And there's this theme of desire. There's there's those that that love God. Uh, then there, there's also the sinful desire in us. And then there's an element of desire in verse 18, too, that we're going to sort of try to, to draw out. So desire, love, what do we love? And then notice a couple parallel illustrations. Did you see that, that birth and conception is an illustration that, that shows up in both sections? So the first has to do with the temptation that is, is a seed in us, and it's conceived, and it gives birth to sin, and then it grows up into death itself. And then there's another one in verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth. That brought us forth is kind of that same illustration almost of, of birth and maturity. So there's lots kind of going on here. James is connecting a lot of different dots, and it all ties back into those previous verses as well. But just kind of seeing those things I hope is helpful. But this first section, beginning, we'll begin with verse 13 and come back to 12, is trying to answer this question, where does temptation come from? So that's sort of our first big concept that we're going to think about. Where does temptation come from? And the first answer is very clear. Where does temptation come from? It does not come from God. James wants to be crystal clear on that. It does not come from God. Verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We need to hear this because we are hardwired to blame others for the sin that's in our own heart. We come from a long line of blame shifters and responsibility shirkers, and it begins all the way back with our first parents, Adam and Eve. We remember this story well, that after they sinned, the Lord comes to them in the garden, and, he, and God calls Adam to account. He said, why did you eat of this? And what's Adam's response? The woman. Interestingly, it's not even just that. He's not just blaming Eve. What does he say? The woman that you gave me, she told me to do it. How interesting. And when Eve sees that she's being thrown under the bus, she says, the serpent, he made me do it. We naturally want to see the problem of temptation as rooted somewhere else or in someone else. Maybe our spouse or our children, or our friends, or our siblings, or someone we've never met even. If we could blame them, that'd be fine too. Just not not me. They caused me to sin. Maybe even we point the finger at Satan, right? The devil made me do it. And certainly we do wage war against the world and the flesh and the devil. But James doesn't even bring that up. You know why? I, I think he... Because for the most part in, li- in our lives, we, we don't have to m- worry much about Satan usually because our own sinful desires are strong enough to contend with on a daily basis. That's the focus of life for the most part. Even if we did follow the train of, of blaming Satan, we come to this pesky question of, of the origin of evil. So if God is the creator of all things, and if he presumably created the serpent who tempts Eve into evil, then is God the author of, of evil? Could the serpent, when when he was blamed, have pointed the finger at, at God and said, you made me. You made me like this. 
even beyond that, if we start to think about where James is going to land, he's going to say that temptation comes from within us. It comes within our sinful desires. Well, couldn't we just shake our finger, shake our finger at God and say, you made me this way. You put these desires in me. How is it my fault that I struggle with temptation all the time? You're the one that made me like this. I think that's kind of why James brings this up. This is a huge question, the question of the origin of evil. It's a complex one. There's many facets to address with it. But I think James, in some way, just cuts right to the trace, chase, and he answers that question simply and succinctly. He says, God is neither tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. However you're going to wrestle with that question of the origin of evil, we have to come with the knowledge, James says, the, the plain knowledge that God is not the author of evil, and he doesn't draw anyone into evil. That's, that's who he is. At the core of who God is, is this truth that he is holy, holy, holy. He is untouched by evil. It's not something that he is tempted to. God is not tempted to evil. He's, he's not like the gods of the pagan nations, or maybe you've read Greek mythology. God is not like them at all, because if you read those things, they were prone to anger or lust or drunkenness or violence. Even the world itself is often built out of violence when you read their creation myths and stories. But God has nothing to do with that. He, he is not evil. He's untouched by evil, and he doesn't tempt anyone either. So we've said that God brings these tests and these trials into our, our lives. But the test that we've talked about, that, it's not a lure into sin. That's not got what, what God is doing. These are opportunities for faith. We can know in the midst of difficulty that He is not rooting for us to fall. The testing and the trial that come into our lives, God is not trying to get us to do evil. He's not placing us into a situation where sin is the only option. Paul says that, right? There's no temptation that has taken you. But such as is common to man, God will always provide a way of escape. So when temptation comes into our lives, here's what we should definitely not say. We should not say, God is tempting me. This truth about God should be so settled in our hearts that it never even crosses our minds to say that this temptation is from God. And an accusation of evil directed to God should also... Never cross our lips. I just love the way he says that. Let no one say. Don't even, don't even think about saying this. That God has tempted me to evil. Okay, so it's not God. <laughs> that's clear, right? Where does temptation come from? Not from God. If that's true, then where do we find the source of temptation? Where is the source of temptation? Have you ever had the experience of losing your glasses or maybe like a hat or something and you look everywhere for it and suddenly you find out that you're wearing them? <laughs> I, I think that's sort of what's happening in this situation. We, we look for the source of evil. We go on long journeys and, and treks and expeditions only to realize that the source of evil is actually right inside us. Where does evil come from? Where does temptation come from? It comes from our sinful desires. It comes from our sinful desires. Very clear, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. What? By his own desire. Lured and enticed. Those are words used in, in fishing. Uh, lures are used to entice fish into swallowing a lie, not realizing that it's going to land them on a plate to be swallowed by the fishermen. Uh, we could talk to Russell about fishing and bait uh, actually, I read a great illustration. Trevor sent me his old James sermon so that I could kind of pilfer them. And 
Uh, you know what? What's what's? Do you remember the the best bait for trout that you told? Me? It was marshmallows. <laughs> so there you go. Now you can, you can. But there's different lures, different baits, and we don't know what's going to get what. But different things lure different fish. Uh, commentator Motyer says that the word lured. It's, it expresses the magnetism, the magnetic force of desire, the hyp, hypnotic attraction of bait for a hungry beast. Doesn't temptation feel like that sometimes? That you're, you've been hypnotized and you feel like there's a magnetic draw to whatever it is that is in front of you. This is what temptation is. What a, a great description. I mean, it's a terrible thing, but it's just a perfect description of what we face. The word enticed means to, to drag off. It points to a, a dominating and directive power within our desires. In us, our desires that find their root in our sinful flesh and that have been formed and fashioned by the brokenness of our stories. There are things that, that you struggle with, temptations that you face that are in some, they're not unique to you, but they are uniquely strong for you, for each of us. Some temptations are very common to each of us that we know exactly what it's like. And some people struggle with one thing and some people struggle with, with something else. But we all have these desires within us. Sin comes from within. If we want to point the finger at the final source of temptation, we should always point at our own heart. Of course, there's that old adage, if you want to point at someone else, what... what you got three fingers pointing back at yourself, right? That's the reality of sin. If we want to find someone else to blame, boy, it's not going to work. The illustration moves then from fishing and from what temptation looks like into the realm of birth and, and maturity. Temptations, if left unchecked, they produce sin. It says they conceive sin, and sin gives birth to death. It matures into death. This is a strange conception and pregnancy and birth and child, isn't it? That's a, it's a weird illustration to use, but that's, that's what it is. This progression from desire to sin and then sin to death, it actually parallels the, the positive ascent of trials that we're supposed to have. So there's this downward spiral of, of temptation. Our sinful desires lead to, to sin, the actual sin, and that sin then leads to death. But what are trials supposed to do? Trials are supposed to produce patience and then maturity and Christ-likeness. There's an upward spiral, as it were. And ultimately, it's the, the crown of life that we are to receive, right? But what's the result of sin? Death itself. It's as if we have two paths in front of us. Again, this is the story from the beginning, isn't it? We think about Adam and Eve. They were lured. They were enticed by the fruit that it, it looked like it was good for food, it says. And not only that, but they were enticed by the desire to be godlike. And so they rebelled, and they sinned. And what was the result? The result was exactly what God says, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And death is the result. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So the death that reigns because of Adam is, is spiritual. It's also physical. And, and we find that sin still brings physical and spiritual death into our lives. Sin is a destroyer. 
sin actually will bring physical death in people. Whether, whether because of our own actions, we, we actually bring physical death, whether through addiction or whether through countless other means, we can bring death into ourselves and sin in hating others can bring death as well. Sin brings death into our lives. Sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly, but it will destroy us. And sin will kill us spiritually in the, in the end if God doesn't intervene. I'm just struck even as I'm talking now about, boy, how serious sin is, isn't it? That it leads to death. We think it's just something to play with. Like a like a lure, you know? just some, Like a fish probably just says, I'm just going to bat at this, or I'm just going to eat this little thing and I'll be fine. There's no temptation that's like that. Every temptation, if it leads into sin, brings death. As I'm thinking about Adam and Eve, I've, I was in the book of Genesis a lot this past week with, with some brothers in Florida doing a teaching down there. And and I was thinking about the, the next scene, which is Cain and Abel, and how sin brings death there. Maybe extra credit. Check out Genesis 4 if you want something to look at. But interesting there to see some of these same themes. And in fact, God gives a warning where he says to, to Cain, you remember this? He says, Cain, you need to watch out because sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Maybe something to think about, the desire in us, but also that sin actually has a desire to kill us. And how it does get Cain. And, and Cain's sin even brings death into his brother's life. The first murder. Something to look at. So verse 16 here then, it could go with the following section, but could it also be this final reminder of not being deceived? Don't think wrongly about who God is. Don't think that temptation is coming from God, but but don't be deceived into that. Instead, know that temptation is, is in our own hearts. Where, did t- where does temptation come from? Temptations rise from within us. That's where temptation comes from. It's a corrective to, to what we usually think, which that the problem of temptation and sin is, is outside of me. When I'm tempted, it's, it's because of external forces. All these things, they're making me sin. They're calling me into sin. And James says, no, the problem is you. And when we realize that the problem is in me, then we are ready to humbly receive the truth that the solution to the problem has to be outside of me. If I'm going to fight temptation, if I'm going to fight sin, if I'm going to fight death, then the solution has to be somewhere outside of me. So what is the solution? Let me ask a bigger question just then. What is the solution? Here's our second big idea in this section, second section. So we've asked, where does temptation come from? Now we're going to ask, where does anything good come from? Where, where does good come from? If temptation leads us to sin and to death, it leads us into evil, where does anything good come from? Again, James is going to give us a real clear answer right at the beginning in verse 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every good gift comes from God. Every good gift comes from God. What a direct contrast to this idea that says there is no evil in God. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Everything good. Every perfect gift, all of it, comes from God. 
We saw this just sort of in a small way last week. Remember that if we would ask God for wisdom, He will give it to us. Why? Because His generosity is boundless. He just never ceases giving. And He gives freely to us. But He doesn't just give wisdom. He gives us everything good. Of course, part of the problem with temptation is it distorts what we think is good. We think that God is withholding something from us. Again, this is Adam and Eve. They think that God is keeping something good from them. So they go after it. But we realize, no, God gives everything good to us. That's His heart for us. All good. Not just wisdom. Any blessing, any positive gift is from the Father of lights. We read back in Genesis 1 that that God created light by the word of His mouth. And then He created all the lights of the heavens. He creates the sun and the moon and the stars. One of the good gifts He gives us is, is light. The light that we have from God. The times and the seasons. But James actually isn't trying to point, I don't think, to the gift of the sun and the moon. Rather, I think he's comparing God as the source of light to the lights that he has made and created. So you think about the different lights that we see, the sun and the moon and the stars, and how changeable and variable they are. That the sun rises and sets every day, that there's different distances to the sun, and the tilt of the earth changes the seasons. Or you think about the moon and how sometimes you can't even see it in the sky because it, it's, it's, there's nothing there to see. It's a new moon. Or sometimes you see a full moon and it's shining brightly, but it has all these phases in between. It's always waxing and, and waning. And even the stars, depending on the time of year, you might not be able to see certain constellations because they're on the other side of the earth and you don't see those things. The sun and the moon and the stars, they are always, always changing. But what does verse 17 tell us? It says, He's the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. <laughs> He's the source of the light. He's the source of all those light lights. And as much as He is like them, He is totally different from them because He does not change. He does not shift. There is no moment where the phase of God is a new moon and it's black and you can't find it. He's always shining brightly, and he's always in the same spot. He has no shadow. R.C. Sproul has written a children's book titled, The King Without a Shadow. I've never read it, but I love the title. <laughs> the King Without a Shadow. Uh, it's, it's, it points to this idea that in the verse that the fact that God is the source of all light and all goodness. If you're the source of light, you have no shadow. And that's who God is. We read First John. Uh, Jake read that for us, that God is light, and in Him is what? No darkness at all. Not a bit. He is that now. And then think about the promise of Revelation 22.5, there will be a day when there is no more night, no need for lamps, no need for sun. Why? Because God will be the light for all eternity. That's who He is. Isn't that encouraging to know? Not only that God does not tempt us to evil, but just the alternate fact that that He never will, because He never changes. In fact, if we think that He's tempting us to evil, we have the exact opposite idea of who He is. He does the exact opposite. He's working always for our good. He is working always to help us. He is consistently good and perfect. God is never going to fly off the handle with unrighteous anger. God will never fall asleep with fatigue. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. 
He's always present. He gives you everything that you could ever need in the walk of faith. So where does good come from? Every good gift comes from God. And the goodness and the generosity of God will never change for all eternity. Now, within this category of, of good things, we find that one of the good things that God is going to give us is the supernatural transformation that will make holiness possible. Because we struggle with sinful desires and we change. But those who are in Christ have been changed and given new desires through the work of Christ. So we see that every good gift comes from God. And the second thing as we think about where does good come from is to say the greatest gift comes from God. The, the greatest gift in the world comes from God. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. We're going to think about this in four parts. Of his own will, second, he brought, sorry, three parts. He brought us forth by the word of truth, and then third, that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. So verse 18 speaks of a, of a birth. Unlike verses 14 and 15, this is a new birth. This is a, a recreation. I think that's why he says the father of lights in, in, verse, uh, in verse 16. It's not just that he is the source of light, but that he is the father. And he has children that he is bringing into the world, the, the sons and the daughters of God by faith. So that we see at the beginning there that it happens how? It happens of his own will. It's a purposeful action of God. I think in contrast to this other kind of birth process in verses 14 and 15 where, where it brings forth death. Because when you think about temptation, um, it, it's often we're, we're, like, we're like beasts. We're like fish. We don't even know what we're doing. It's just sort of the natural inclination of our hearts to reach out and, and grab sin. But in, op in opposition to that, God is purposeful. He's, he's doing something. It also highlights that, that our, in our darkness, we cannot save ourselves. We can't do it of our own will. None of us chose to be born. None of us made that decision. That was a decision made on our behalf. And none of us chooses to be born again. We need God to step in and rescue us out of his own free will. We need him to save us, not because of anything in us, but because of the shadowless goodness that is in him. Of his own will, he has brought us forth. And how does he do it? By the word of truth. By the word of truth. Again, back to the first creation. Is done how? By the word of God. And how are we made new creations? By the Word of God. The Word of God, I think specifically in the Gospel. Our natural desires and our sinful actions will always lead to death. And they will eventually lead to eternal death if something doesn't change. And the thing that changes us is this God who never changes. He comes to us in Jesus as the Word made flesh. So we read He is he is the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Jesus comes as the Word, and though He had never sinned, and He never 
never bit at temptation. He never followed this cycle into death and spiritual death. Though he never did that, what does he do? He dies. Because we all have. He dies and takes the death that is the punishment for sin. He descends into death for us and then rises victorious over it. Jesus offers us the greatest gift. And it's himself. He is the greatest gift. And he calls us to repent of our sins and to find life in him. And when we do, we are transformed by the word of truth. Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they say that, you know what we need? They make this prophecy of the new covenant. What do we need in the new covenant? We need a new heart. That's what we need. Jesus comes on the scene, and what does he tell Nicodemus he needs to do? you got to be born again, Nicodemus. Of course, that doesn't mean that Nicodemus crawls back into his mother's womb. That's what he's confused about. I don't think he really thought that. He's just saying, this doesn't make sense, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you need a whole new identity. I need to make you born again. That's what coming to Jesus is like. James draws that out here, I think, this idea of being born. Paul says that if anyone's in Christ, what are you? A new creation. It's totally different. Brand new. And then listen to this. In one book over, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it's oh, it's so parallel. 1 Peter 1, and I want to read 22 to 25. It says here in 1 Peter 1, just one book over there from James, Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. There's the word again. The word is the good news that was preached to us. And that is how we are redeemed. That's how we are saved. That's how we are born again through the living and abiding word of God. That's what James is saying here. Of his own will, he brought us forth. He made us born by the word of truth. Part of that transformation is a transformation in what we love and what we desire. So we have sinful desires, it says, right? Where does, where does temptation come from? Everyone's enticed by his own desire. But what if you're a new creation? Well, if you're a new creation, if you've been born again, if you have a new heart, you have new desires. Now, that's not to say that there's not a battle between the flesh and the spirit. In this present time, that's what, we, that's what we're wrestling with, right? is that we are enticed by sin for some reason, but the wrestling is that we also desire to follow after Christ. And in Christ we're made new. We're we're made capable of saying no to the sinful desires. We can see the, the lure and the enticement, and because of the power of God in us, through His Word, we can say, no, I don't really want that. What I really want is to follow Christ. That's my great desire. In the midst of temptation, in the midst of trial, we say, my great desire is to be like Christ. And that's the desire that I'm going to follow. We have this new desire, and it's slowly taking root by God's power, and it's a desire for God's righteousness to be built in us more and more. And we are these first fruits, it says. That's that, that third part there. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Interesting word. There's a lot of different ways we could go with that. What I think is saying is that is talking about the offering of the first fruits. So in the Old Testament, the first fruits 
always belonged to the Lord. You think about the tithe in the Old Testament. The tithe was always of the, the first thing that came, the first crop, the, the first animal. It was always given to God. Even the firstborn was, belonged to God. The first fruits belong to the Lord, and they are given to God as an offering with expectation. Maybe latch on to that. That's the phrase I'm kind of trying to meditate on, an offering with expectation. That, that's what the first fruits is. And, and we are God's first fruits. And we offer ourselves to Him with expectation of more fruit. So we, we give ourselves to God and trust that He is going to produce even more fruit in us. So God has transformed us. And in response, like, like in, in Romans 12, we offer up ourselves as a living sacrifice, as a, as the first fruits, as what now belongs to God with the promise that more fruit is going to come. I think that's what that means. But this is the greatest gift. This, this mysterious verse of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. This is the key of fighting the sinful desires that take us into sin and then into death. The key is to say, but I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. I have been brought forth by the word of truth, by God himself. I have given myself to God as an offering, and he's producing fruit in me that will continue to grow and last until I receive the crown of life. That's who I am. Do I have sinful desires? Yes. But I also have this great desire to be like Christ. Look back then at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So we said last week that this um, that it's those who love God who receive the crown of life as they remain steadfast under trial. I mentioned that that, that blessed is the man part reminded me of, of the Beatitudes in, in Matthew 5, which I think is still helpful. But then Carolyn told me, she said, that reminded me of Psalm 1, blessed is the man. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And so I looked up Psalm 1, and Psalm 1, if you think about what we've just looked here, looked at here in verses 12 through 18, and then you go to Psalm 1, I want you to go to Psalm 1, because I think in light of these verses, the connection is, is clear. I'm not totally disavowing the connection to Matthew 5, but this may be better. <laughs> Psalm 1, which we read as our call to worship. Listen to these words. Again, that first phrase, blessed is the man. What man is blessed? The one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruitful its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Notice in verses one to two a similar descent into sin. It's this threefold descent. Remember that in James, it's it's your your desires then lead to sin and then lead to death. And here it's walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers. Uh, notice too, there's a difference of delight, a difference of love. But his delight is where? In the law of the Lord, in the ways of the Lord. 
Notice again the, the transformative power of the Word of God. On His law, He meditates day and night. That's how we're transformed. Notice the fruitfulness things that, that for the offering of first fruits with the hope of more, we will be like a tree planted. We're not going to be like those tossed to and fro by the, by the ways of the sea. We won't be double-minded people in the midst of difficulty and temptation. We will be a tree firmly planted. The wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The way of the wicked will bring what? Death. They will perish. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And the way of the righteous will prosper all the way to the point of receiving the crown of life. Man, what a good meditation. I, I commend to you Psalm 1 this week to write somewhere and keep it with you. Maybe right next here to, to James chapter 1. Let me just kind of think back on what we've looked at and then bring some, hopefully some practical application. But So there's, there's this big question that we have of, of where does temptation come from? I mean, we all face temptation every single day. And, and we face temptation all the time. Where does it come from? It doesn't come from God. He does not tempt us. And He Himself is not tempted. But rather it rises from within us. Temptation rises from within us, from our own sinful desires. And if it's in us, then the solution has to be outside of us. We always want to blame everyone else and think that we are the solution to our problem. But in fact, we are our own problem. And the solution is outside of us. So where does good come from? Everything that is good comes from God. He is the source of all good. And He is the source of the greatest good, which is the transformative power to take my sinful heart and to change it and make me love Him and love His ways. Temptations rise from within, therefore we must seek the solution outside of us. So six sort of responses. These will be brief. Number one, identify your sinful desires. Identify your sinful desires. What at this moment, there's stages in life, there's difference in personalities, there's difference in weaknesses. We are all different. We are the same in that we all have sinful desires. But what are my sinful desires? That's not something I really want to think about. What are the lures, though, that, that are going to get you to bite and lead you to death? Identify your sinful desires. Second, resist the desire to blame shift. <laughs> this is hard. Once you know what your desires are, resist the desire to blame shift. Resist the desire to say, well, I wouldn't do that if it weren't for him or her or that situation or this situation. Resist that desire. Third, humbly repent. Repentance brings life change. Humbly repent. Identify the desires. Don't blame shift. Own them as your own. And then repent. Say, God, I don't want to do this. Expressing that desire. Fourth, and this is sort of a generic way to say it, maybe the better way to say it. I, I wish there was a the depth of what this is. I wish I could say it better. But remember that you are a new creation. Just remember that you're a new creation. You've been born again. You have new desires. And maybe that's part of it too. Is to rec is to when we recognize those sinful desires that when we remember we're a new creation, we're also saying, well, what are my real desires? Put that in there as a as number four. <laughs> Identify your new desires. What do you really want? What what do we really want? I'm a new creation. What are my new desires? 
and then fourth or fifth, however you want to number them, <laughs> offer your life in gratitude. Offer your life as the first fruits in gratitude for what Christ has done. And then last, allow the word to bear fruit. Allow the word to bear fruit. The way we are changed and saved is the way that we grow. It's by the word of truth. We are born again by the word of truth. We are transformed by the word of truth continually. Why do we open the word every Sunday? Because it's how we're transformed. Why do we encourage one another to meditate on the word day after day? Because the word is, is what transforms us. Why do we sing songs rooted in the word? The word is what transforms us. Why do we meet together and talk about the word? Because the word transforms us. It allows us to bear fruit. It keeps us from temptation. It shows us the way to go. Isn't that what just happened? Didn't that just happen? That we just said, oh yeah, I know why I sin. I don't want to do that. God has given me new desires and this is how I'm transformed. Final thoughts. God is not the source of temptation. He is the solution to it. So we shouldn't point the finger at God. But we should pray and ask Him to change us because it's in us that we find the source of sin and death. But because of His will and the word of the gospel, God has caused us to be reborn and made new. And we are the first fruits of that. And we're able to be steadfast under trial because we love Him and because He's given us that new desire to allow the new creation He's made to come out in our lives. So, Temptations rise from within us, therefore we must seek the solution outside of us. And there is a solution, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. So by God's grace, may we remain steadfast in temptation, loving Christ above all until he returns. And then we will receive the crown of life and dwell with the Father of lights in light for all eternity.